Welcome to Episode 8. We begin today's episode with a public service announcement. If you're in the car listening to this episode while driving, we suggest you pull over at the nearest rest stop because today's episode is a long one. And it's because there's so much to cover. We continue our chat with Mark Bala, condo mediator and superstar hockey player. And it's all about annual general meetings, or AGMs. An AGM is a meeting held once per year at a condominium so the owners can elect a board of directors. Today we're talking about how someone campaigns for the board of directors and how owners can vote for their candidate and see them get elected. If you've never been to an AGM, or if you're interested in how this process works, join us and let's make condos great again. Now, Mark, um, annual general meetings, right? This, the, the, these big events, mm-hmm. right, like the main event, we're going to, I think we're going to go on a wrestling theme for a little while because of you, man. <laughs> um, this is where the action happens, where the, where the board, I'm not going to say is created, but is elected. Yes. Okay, the board is created at the turnover meeting or the first AGM, and that's where the board is made. It's, 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 it's birthed into the world. Uh, we, we, we can talk about that. Actually, why don't we just talk about that for a second? Let's touch on that. So we've got the first board. Yes. All right. How is it comprised? How is it made? When is it made? Enlighten our, our listeners on, because I, I know my daughter has just uh, purchased a condo and uh, they've elected a, a board member who wasn't even there at the meeting. So, and, and everyone is up in arms. They're all going, who is this guy? What is he doing? Who, wh- wh- how did he get on? All right, maybe you can touch yeah, on that. Yeah, so essentially a condominium is created by a developer who buys, simply stated, would, would buy the land, meet all the requirements of the municipalities to, to, to build the structure known as a condominium. A, the condominium gets formed when its declaration gets registered. The declaration is effectively the birth certificate of the condo. And as all this goes on, the, the declarant puts together an initial board. But I think what we're really talking about where the board really comes into form is that turnover, when the unit owners now start having a say in how their community is governed. And what is turnover? Turnover is the period of time in which basically the keys to the castle are given from the developer to that unit owner collective through their elected representatives. So at the very first annual general meeting, at the very first meeting, they will elect amongst themselves their elected representatives to serve on their board. And hence the condominium-controlled, owner-elected board of directors is formed. Nicholas, did you hear that? He said, and hence. I think that's like, that's a, a term Benjamin was using a lot. It's, it's uh, very similar to lo and behold. Lo and behold, <laughs> yes. We're, hopefully we'll hear a little more hence. So we've got the turnover meeting. We've got the AGM. We have the first board. Okay. So they are on for a term. What are the usual terms? Do these people, are they are they elected for life? Or how does that work? The, the terms are usually set out in the bylaws of the condominium corporation and can vary. But usually they're done on a cyclical basis so that Basically, at virtually every AGM, some director's term is up for re-election. So typically, you'd have one, two, or three-year terms to start off to, to set the differing cycle. And then usually on a go-forward basis, each director is typically elected for three years unless there's a vacancy that they're filling. Okay. So that ins- what we always uh, phrase it for, for the uh, candidates and for boards at each AGM is you want to make sure that you don't change your board every year like changing your oil every 5,000 kilometers. You want to ensure there's continuity so yep. that people had an idea of what's going on. There's Some of them are still staying on the board 
and moving forward. So a simple example, when you have that first board, say there's three members of that board. One is elected for three years, one is elected for two years, one is elected for one year. So in each of the next three annual general meetings that are going to take place, one director position is up. That person who's there can stand for re-election or they might have somebody new. But at each year, you have a minority of the board that's changing. You have two directors that are staying on and one that is potentially changing to allow there to be some consistency and some succession planning amongst the, the group. Works for me. So how does one become elected to the board? How do owners choose who they would like to represent them to make these decisions? First and foremost, somebody has to have interest in joining a board. They either have to express that they have interest before even the AGM package is circulated, and if given the opportunity, can include a little bio sheet as to what they might have interest in and, and what their background is, or get nominated even at the floor at the AGM by somebody else in the community who thinks they would be a good director. But there has to be that desire, and it can be in, in some communities difficult to, to get people interested when you're looking at a volunteer position that might be seen at times as being relatively thankless. At the other end of the spectrum, you, know, you mentioned condos are often people's investments, sometimes the biggest investment of their life. They, they like the opportunity to know what's going on and to have some influence and have a say into how it's going to be governed. But first and foremost, you would have to be nominated, put your name forward to seek election, and then it would be up to the unit owners themselves to see if they'd like to elect you or not. So to summarize, when there is a vacancy on the board, whether that's one position or two or more, whether that's for one years or three years or whatever the terms may be, you have interested people that live in the community or own a unit that would like to protect their investment or would like to serve on the board for whatever reason, and they've put forth their candidacy. So once they've put forth their candidacy and, and, and they describe their intention to be on the board, how do they go about uh, campaigning, uh, getting uh, votes, uh, proxies, which is another term that some people may not be familiar with, and how does one uh, interested person uh, run an ethical campaign to become elected and, and go through the process of having an annual general meeting? And hence, I think Mark will explain what a, a proxy is. I'll get into the proxy, but I just want to address what you were talking about with ethical campaigns at first, is actually recently I've come across a number of situations surrounding that very thing. Uh, I was contacted earlier this week because somebody in the condominium community was concerned that a director currently serving on their board, whose term was not up for re-election at the upcoming AGM, endorsed a candidate who had announced that they were interested in running. And there was nothing in the condominium documents that prevented that, but it didn't sit well with this individual, which is why I was contacted because they, just, they felt that it was unfair for a sitting board member to endorse somebody. They thought that that was giving them an unfair advantage. Great situation. Yeah, please elaborate. I, well, just going back to the whole analogy of different levels of government, and the other levels of government, we see that kind of thing all the time. You see members of political parties endorsing others to try to help them gain momentum and, and gain steam and get the votes to get elected. It's, it's nothing that's uncommon when you look at it as the equivalent of the electoral process anywhere else had another situation more recently, and this one comes up all the time. So what you're saying is, it's okay, though, if uh, an existing board member says, hey, vote for Bob because we like him and he's good and we want him on the board. Unless there's something in the community's governing documents that specifically prevents it. I, I've seen it happen, and it's been considered to be completely legal. Now, just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean that you should do something. Each condominium community has its own culture. In certain condominium communities, 
that kind of behavior would be frowned upon. People would not like a board member to do that. And the way that they would discourage that kind of behavior would be through their voice through voting. If a board member endorses a candidate and the union owners don't elect that candidate, that might send a message to that particular board member that that type of behavior, while it might very well be allowed because there's nothing preventing it, isn't something that the community wants them to do. Good. Now, and, okay, so the other example that comes uh, comes together quite often is candidates soliciting proxies. So the one I was contacted about more recently, there was a candidate who was hanging out in the lobby, and as people were coming and going, they would approach them, give them a bit of a campaign speech. If they weren't going to come to the meeting, try to get their proxy to get their vote. I've had situations where people go door, door to door, knocking on doors, trying to get people's proxies. Yep, absolutely. Right? If there's nothing in the governing documents of the community that specifically prevents somebody from doing that... Then it's kosher. Then it, it's allowed yep. at the same time. I actually came across one condo a couple of years ago that a person went to a lot of effort doing that and actually lost more votes than they gained you know so you need to think about what the community itself is like and, and also your timing like you don't want to go knocking on people's doors in the middle of the Super Bowl that might not get you many votes no, either no but now I know uh, from my perspective when I was managing a particular building in Etobicoke um, I, I did the very thing actually for me the lobby didn't work I found if I hung around in the mailroom it was much, much better because that's where the people were coming. And door-to-door. -door, but I was only soliciting proxies for quorum. I wasn't endorsing candidates. And now, is there anything in the new legislation that says about how managers solicit yeah, proxies? Managers have to be very careful because their role in the proxy process is changing. There are restrictions that are coming in place with legislative change. And I think, again, it's one of those what you actually are allowed to do and what is okay and what's, what's kosher and what's not kosher versus the perceptions out there. So I don't just think it's a question of figuring out what you're allowed to do, but it's making sure that it's being presented in a way that's going to be considered to be appropriate in the community because conflict can arise a lot of times just out of misunderstandings or, or the perceptions that people have as to what's right. going on. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about what a proxy is? Sure. A proxy is giving your vote to somebody else. So it doesn't necessarily have to be another unit owner. It, it can really be anybody that you like, but it's, it's giving your vote, your voice at the AGM to a representative to, to express it on your behalf. So they can vote who they want for you? Well, now there's different types of, of proxies and it depends on the situation. If you have a situation where say, for example, you're trying to pass a bylaw, which for some condominiums can be very difficult to do because you need a majority of all unit owners to vote in favor of passing that bylaw. The dreaded 50% plus one. Exactly. You can see some proxies where the person who's filling out their proxies casts their vote in the proxy itself, right? There are other times where a proxy is more general and you're basically giving your ballot to somebody else to complete at the AGM. So it's if say it is another unit owner, they actually have two votes that they're they're casting, yours and somebody else's because they're they're holding your proxy. The advantage of that is we, we talked about the nomination process. You don't always know before the meeting who's going to be running for election to the board, right? Uh, if you're looking at a, a bylaw, you might not necessarily know all of the information as to why the board is trying to pass this bylaw. There might be some advantages to actually having somebody there in person to understand fully what their choices are and what's going on to be able to make a decision. And I think a further point to that is to realize that every unit in the building carries one vote. If you're a husband and wife and you both own the unit, you don't have two votes because there are two owners of the unit. You have one vote per unit of the building. And a proxy is your vote. 
So when you go to an annual general meeting, normally what happens after the candidates are nominated and they have a chance to speak, uh, they are uh, now taken to an election process. And that process involves the submission of ballots from people who are at the AGM, mm -hmm. and it involves the counting of the proxies from people who are not at the AGM. So it's important for people to understand that when they are electing directors, they only have one vote per unit. So they cannot give a ballot and a proxy at the same meeting because that would be two votes. Exactly. And there are times when somebody, a uh, union owner who doesn't think they're able to attend the annual general meeting, provides a uh, proxy and then their schedule changes and it turns out that they're available that night. They can show up but then they'd have to revoke their proxy in order to be able to do that. Now, proxies notoriously give rise to conflict. There hasn't previously been a, a set form of, of how they should be set out. And thankfully, with the legislative changes, we are seeing the introduction of a form of proxy. So there were, there's going to be a standardized proxy form that uh, management companies uh, will be using province-wide, so which will hopefully take care of any of the confusion or... Uh, problems that generate from how the proxies are worded and how they're shaped and all the things that probably you've seen, I know we've seen, uh, in terms of uh, uh, conflict. I don't think it would be reasonable to expect there to no longer be any proxy fights, but certainly I think that the idea of a standardized form will help minimize them. At the very least, when you're looking at trying to educate people who are filling out these forms, if you have a different form of proxy in every condominium, you can imagine how confusing it would be. If you have a consistent form of proxy province-wide, it's a lot easier to enlighten people as to how it should be set out and how it should be completed. Mark, we talked about uh, nominations and, and candidacy and the election of directors, but one thing we, we didn't touch on uh, yet was quorum. Uh, I believe that's a term that uh, is very important in an annual general meeting, and it is uh, the prerequisite to actually uh, conducting the business of the corporation at that meeting. So can you explain uh, what quorum is and how we reach quorum? The whole idea of quorum is surrounds participation. So for a condominium corporation to have their annual general meeting, for it to proceed in business to be conducted, you have to have a, a certain amount of union owners participate in person or by proxy. So traditionally it's been 25%. You have that number of owners come out, everything's good to go, you can conduct your meeting, your meeting can proceed. If you don't reach that threshold, then you, you're not in an you're not in a position to be able to conduct business. Normally what would happen is the status quo would remain in, until you do. Um, some condominiums have owners who are very actively involved and this isn't a problem. Others have a really hard time with union owner apathy, whether it be a lot of owners who maybe don't necessarily live in the, in the community uh, or out of the province, out of the city, out of the country, or simply who do and, and have other things that they deem to be more important. But some condominium co corporations really struggle with this. Uh, with the legislative changes, they're, they're changing the threshold on a third attempt now to lower it, to make it a little bit easier for condominiums to proceed. But generally, the, the whole idea of quorum is having a minimum amount of participants from the community come out to take part in the annual general meeting to allow it to move forward in the business to be conducted. And that minimum amount is, as defined by the Act? 25%. 25% of the owners. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have a condo of 100 units, you can't have a meeting unless you have a minimum of 25 unit owners there in person or proxy. Right. Now, there have been, through the use of technology, easier ways for people to achieve quorum, such as electronic proxies and, and doing things in that way. You mentioned uh, the potential with certain uh, uh, video networking. I, I'm not certain 
technically had the law looks at that you should get a lawyer in to talk about that. I, I think that would be helpful to, to see. But also... With Can the, you recommend one? That <laughs> Let with, me guess. Elian Associates. With the legislative changes, though, they are making it that third time around the, the threshold drop. So it is going to be possible on a go-forward basis to proceed without the 25%. I believe it's 15% on the third time That's around. That's right, yeah. yeah. So now let's, let's recap. We've, we've got an AGM as planned. People are sitting there. We have the packages gone out. Um, the board has... Uh, endorsed or not endorsed candidates, um, proxies have been solicited or not solicited, but this meeting is going ahead. And we have usually, if there is a position open, then there's um, uh, candidates for the position that will submit a resume or bio that's included in the package. Mm -hmm. Is there any other way, once that's done, if you miss getting your resume or bio in the package, that's it? You cannot run for the board? You can be nominated from the floor in the course of the AGM. But let's just take a step back and, and revisit the whole idea of proxies. There are two ways that unit owners can participate in their annual general meeting. They can go there in person to, to see and hear what's going on and to cast their vote, or they can provide a proxy to, to someone else uh, in advance. Can they, can they be um, brought in by Skype? Can they, can they go in by Skype or FaceTime? Can they attend the, the AGM that way? That's an interesting question. I think it depends if the condominiums governing documents would allow that. I haven't come across that before. I, I, everything that I've come across has been either you're there in person or by proxy. And we can maybe see if a lawyer might have any thoughts on how that would work. Uh, have you come across anything like that before? One, one of my managers on my staff has just asked me. Um, they have a, an owner that can't make the meeting, but uh, he would like to attend via Skype. Interesting. Or well, I imagine that would be no different than putting your name forth as a candidate with a proxy. Uh, sometimes you might have a candidate that might not be at the meeting, but they're on the candidate list and they're mm -hmm. running for a position on the board of directors, and people can still submit their vote either in person or uh, through a proxy themselves. And if that candidate's not there and they get elected, then aren't they given a period of time by which they can uh, accept the election? And the, nom the nomination, firstly, they'd have to accept the nomination, and then if they're elected, accept that, yes? I would suppose so, yes. Yeah. I have a story. As I used to I like serve stories. on my condos board, and it's the story of how I got elected to my condos board. So one day just before I was going on vacation, I was reviewing our AGM package, and there's a number of, actually every single position on the board was up for election because they had some resignations. Five-member board, five uh, vacancies. And in the package, there was names of two people who had put their name forward interested in running. So alarm bells went off for me, working in the industry and knowing uh, what goes on. That kind of drastic change in a, in a board is troubling as a unit owner because what's going to happen to the past? Where is all of that consistency? What's going to happen with the status quo? You could potentially have five no, new directors. No and, continuity there. And the way that it looks in the package is there's only, there's only two people that are even interested. And our, our property manager who, who knew of me and knew of my uh, industry involvement had been pestering me for years to, to run for the board. And I was just about to go on vacation. She already had had my, my resume because she was really pushing me in the past. And I sent her a quick email saying, you know what? If you don't have any other candidates step forward to fill the board, put my name forward because I'm concerned as an owner. And I think she misunderstood my instructions or just wanted to take advantage of the situation because she wanted me on the board. But basically, I returned from vacation 
um, find myself elected to the board, found out that during the course of the AGM from the floor, there are more than enough nominations. And not only did I have to accept my uh, election, but I had to explain to people who were actually present how the guy who didn't even bother to show up to the AGM got elected when they didn't. That's exactly what, what my daughter is going through right now with, with her condo. So I'm sure you, uh, did you do your, uh, your three-year duty? Did you I served for about five years, uh, and for about, I think about three of those, I was the president of the board, which was a good experience, but you know, I can say, speak from personal experience. It, it takes a lot of time. When you're living in a condominium community and you're serving on the board, uh, it's hard not to get away from what's happening in the community as you come home with your groceries, as you're walking the dog, if you get caught in the dreaded elevator conversation oh, where there's nowhere to those, go, yeah. people have questions, people are passionate about their issues. Um, drawing back to the analogy of a politician, you can't escape these types of situations. Well, and you have how to many babies them. did you have to kiss? That's what I want <laughs> uh, and it's the type of situation that can be difficult for directors because, first of all, you can't speak for the board. You can't conduct business outside of a duly constituted board meeting, but not everybody who approaches you recognizes that. Uh, you are seen as a, a face of the governing body of the community. You do have some scrutiny. If, if you're violating the rules, how is anybody else going to follow them, for example? Sure. I, I think I was actually most compliant with the governing documents of my community when I was on the board trying to set an example for others. And, and go ahead, Nick. I know now, what you're probably going to say. Go ahead. Now, do you have any advice for unit owners uh, or residents or board members who are caught in that position, whether at an elevator conversation or an owner or resident is trying to pin them down for answers to questions? I mean, how should a board member conduct themselves when they're not at a board meeting. We touched on it a little bit on the fact that they don't have any real decision-making or authority power outside of, uh, outside of board meetings, but how should they conduct themselves when they're in public at their homes? Well, that's not the question I was gonna ask, but that's a better one, so let's go with that one. You know, it's, it's funny because while I was talking about being a condominium director, I actually draw on my mediation experience in answering that question. Usually people who are involved in an issue in a condo, they're passionate about it, it's, it's personal for them, and the, just the way that condominiums are structured can be very frustrating in terms of communication. In this day and age, people are used to being able to get instant communications back and forth. If they have a problem and they, they send it to, to Rogers or, or whatever, they get a response back pretty quickly, they can do a live chat, that sort of thing. We're living in the age of Star Trek. Now, yeah, the way that condominium communications work is what's supposed to be the case, if an owner has an issue, they're supposed to put it in writing and send it to the property manager, who will then include it in their management report and discuss it with the board at the board meeting, and then getting after getting instructions from the board, will reply back. Well. Typically, that can take a month, six weeks. It, it can take some time. And owners who are experiencing an issue, if it's personal to them, if it's really bothering them on a daily basis, for example, they have a hard time feeling as though they're important. They have a hard time feeling heard. There are steps that management can take to help set people's expectations on timelines. But if you have a director who's caught in one of those situations, to me, the most important thing they can do is have that resident feel heard. And having that resident feel heard doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to answer all their questions today, that you're going to give them what they're asking for, but you can let them feel that they're important. You can let them feel as though, yes, their issue is going to be discussed at the next board meeting. Yes, they are going to have some kind of response to what their concern is, and it is I important. I think one of the key things, though, besides is board members should put a little bit of an onus on that resident to say, yes, I hear you, but put it in writing, send it to the manager. Yes. 
that's probably the key thing. Sometimes I, I found that they kind of miss. They bring that vocally to a board meeting or they walk into the manager's office and said, hey, so-and-so is having this and this, this is problem. What are you doing about it? And the manager's sitting there going, I, I haven't heard a word. So a board member can, can say in that kind of situation, this is how I can help you. These are the next steps that you will take. They can clarify that you are not in a position in that elevator conversation to make a binding decision to speak on behalf of the board. You would like it to be discussed at the next board meeting if something can take place, and this is what the person can do. If that person who's come to the board member feels as though the board member is helping them address their issue, it's very different than if they feel like the board member is just another person who's not listening to mm-hmm. them. But essentially that advice would then be to provide process and yes. to communicate that process to a resident. Yes. And that way everyone has the same process and that everyone's issues are considered evenly throughout the community. Everyone's treated fairly and everyone's mm-hmm. treated the same. That's extremely important. When I've gotten involved in situations that are on the risk of going to court uh, in mediation, that's often what it is. An owner feels that they were unfairly treated, and it can get extremely important, especially if you end up in a situation where you have to go to court, for a condominium corporation to be able to say to a judge that this person was treated no differently than anybody else, whether they were a board member, whether they're considered a fan of the board, whether they're considered an enemy of the board, everybody in this community is treated the same way. So then what you're saying then would be that the responsibility is going to be on the board and on the management to ensure that everyone's treated fairly. And I suppose one of the most useful things that a management company or a board member can do is make sure that that's documented somewhere. I see a lot of, we talked about the governing documents of the community, the declaration bylaws and rules. One step beyond that that I see a lot of condominium corporations put in place are policies. A great example is uh, alterations, Section 98 agreements. If somebody's mm-hmm. going to make a change to a common element pertinent to their unit, in order for that to be done legally, you have to enter into what's called a Section 98 agreement and have it registered on title to your unit. And right? I believe we, we actually talked about that a little bit with our last guest, Ben, uh, when we were talking about status certificates and, and, and we mentioned what a Section 98 agreement is. Okay, perfect. So. If you have a system where you have a community and several people are interested in making an alteration, if you have a general policy as to what's going to be accepted and what's not going to be accepted, you can evidence that you're being consistent and fair in your process. If you're viewed as approving one owner's request and not another owner's request, people can perceive that you're playing favorites. Right? So being able to have a, a written policy in place, okay, these are the types of alterations that the board is willing to consider on this type of basis. Anybody who applies is treated the same way. And for someone who does feel that they're being treated unfairly, how would they go about expressing that in a, in a responsible manner? I know there are some provisions under the Act, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, Section 115 with regards to oppression, but there are other uh, remedies, I believe, under the Human Rights Code and perhaps other legislation that we as managers may not be aware of, but what can um, someone who, who on the rare occasion is actually being oppressed or is being treated unfairly, what can they do to, um, to, to deal with that situation? I think the most important thing is communicating their concern in a way that's going to be constructive. Uh, in my mediation practice, a number of times I see situations escalate because people resort to name-calling or, or lengthy, threatening email communications. Pish-tosh, really? Rather than actually trying to come together and express their concern and figure out a way to make things work. So I guess that's a, that's a key thing for you as well is to kind of weave through the emotional part to get to the meat and potatoes of the reasons of what's going on. 
And that's not pushing aside the emotional part. That's recognizing that the emotional part exists and is important, but also at some point taking the opportunity not just to reflect on what's happened in the past and how it's impacted people, but to look forward and figure out how you can move forward with an improved situation. So to recap, we've had the AGM, we've elected officials. Uh, just to touch on nominations, I just want to recap one thing. People can be uh, uh, nominated by proxy. They can put uh, their name in in the package, and they can be nominated from the floor. So one of the things I found people don't really have a grasp on is that they can nominate themselves. They don't have to wait for someone else to nominate them. Correct? It's, it's all the experience I've had, yes, I suppose if a condominium's governing documents had some detailed rules about nominations and required it to be a, a different person, that might not be the case, but generally and in every, every in my 16 years working in the industry, yes, that's, you can nominate yourself. So let me ask you this, Mark. Now we've got people who are interested in running for the board. Can anyone run? Can anyone be a board member? Okay. That is one area that's changing a little bit with the legislative changes. There are two though distinct places that you need to look to figure out exactly who is eligible to put their name forward to their board. First is the Condominium Act, Section 29, which I'm about to go over, but also an individual condominium in its bylaws can add requirements for qualification or the disqualification of directors. So in addition what we're, to what we're about to go over, in terms of what's in Section 29 of the Act, it's important for the listeners here to go and look at their individual condominium corporations documents in case there's anything additional there. So you have to be an individual. You can't be a corporation and serve as a director. So if I have a company and I own 14 condos in a particular building, I, my company cannot be a director. You personally could put your name forward, but your, co your corporation as a separate legal entity cannot be a condominium director. Okay. You have to be 18 or older. You cannot be a minor and serve as a condominium director. You cannot be an undischarged bankrupt. You cannot hold bankruptcy status and be elected to your board. You must be capable of managing property in accordance to the Substitute Decisions Act. Now, well, let's go back over that. Let's mm -hmm. clarify that. That's a whole bunch of words in, in, in particular that, order. That's pretty much a whole bunch of legal jargon there. Okay, so you have to be 18. You have to be mentally capable, and you have to be financially responsible to the extent that you're not bankrupt. Well, I, I, yeah, the, the one we talked about was the manage the, pro read that one back for me. Okay, it's, it's basically the Substitute Decisions Act. Like right. The, the ability, me mental capacity, able to, to be responsible and to, to make decisions. Okay, so. I, thought, I, I thought I heard you said manage property. So. Yeah, it's called capable of managing property under the Substitute Decisions Act. So when you talk about the idea of giving somebody a power of attorney, you can only you can yeah. only do that. Power of attorney for property and power of attorney for personal care. That kind so of that idea. Talk, all right, thank yeah. you. Uh, yeah. Now I got it a little clearer. Now the the new legislation has expanded those qualifications. It used to just be you know the the eighteen not bankrupt mentally sound. Now <laughs> mentally sound. That's the one that always makes the property managers chuckle. <laughs> Then we get into uh, if the regulations end up specifying that you're found to be incapable by any court, that could disqualify you from running. And we'll see as regulations continue to roll out if there's anything there. Uh, if you have a certificate of lien registered against your unit for more than 90 days, you are not allowed to, to run. You have to complete the new prescribed training, which I can go over here. There is now mandatory 
training required of condominium directors. Any condominium director who finds themselves in a director position on or after November 1st, 2017, now has to complete some mandatory training. Now this is online training? Yes, the, the training is provided by the Condominium Authority of Ontario. The Canadian Condominium Institute helped create the curriculum for it, which was nice to see because uh, CCI has been educating directors for years, so, yes. so knows uh, how to do that. Just to let you know that the CCI courses for directors has been around for years and years. And uh, I much prefer dealing with directors who have taken those courses than those who haven't. This curriculum was created specifically for this purpose. This was not an old CCI course. This was built new uh, for the Condominium Authority of Ontario. You can access it at condoauthorityontario.ca. It is offered online and it is offered completely free. So as I mentioned, November 1st, 2017 was the key date. Any director who finds themselves elected, re-elected, on a board, on or after November 1st, within six months, has to complete this mandatory training or they cease to be a director. There's Whoa. no extension. It's, you're, you're no longer a director if you don't complete it. Is there an exam? It's not a pass-fail. It's not a pass-fail, but there are 21 short e-modules, which each range from 10 to 20 minutes each. And in total, the training is expected to last somewhere between three to six hours in total. You get a certificate once you complete your training, and, and once you have that certificate, you need to provide it to your board to show that you have completed the mandatory training. Once you've done that, it's valid for seven years. So th there will be, there's expected to be, uh, going forward, continuing education requirements of those long-standing directors. It's not like you do this once now, get your certificate, and for the next 25 years you can serve on your board. It's expected to be every seven years there will be some need for continuing education for all Yeah, directors. it's like I really wouldn't want to go to my dentist if he only graduated in, in 1952 and didn't have an upgrade. Well, it's almost like a driver's license. You've got to keep it renewed and you have to go and do testing to make sure that you can continue to drive no testing age. no testing well that's a good point <laughs> i think what's important to appreciate though in the course of the legislative review the government looked at a variety of perspectives and you do have those situations and there's some awful stories out there about directors who were uneducated making terrible decisions that impacted you know hundreds if not thousands of people's investments and hundreds and thousands of dollars and, yeah against the, the board members who have been active, and as we've talked about the CCI courses, have been educated. And when you go back to the idea of condominium directorship for the most part being voluntary and trying to include people, some of the feedback that the government gotten while seeing the advantages of having educated directors was some people viewing the idea of education of directors as a bit of a nuisance. And, and you think it through, it doesn't make that much sense because who would want to elect somebody to make these important decisions who didn't know what the heck they were doing? But understanding that some condominium communities actually struggle to find people willing to serve on their board, the government had to balance that. So the idea with this training is it's not an extensive week-long 40-hour type course. We're talking about a total of up to six hours is what's being expected here, good for seven years. So I think realistically in what we're going to expect, the biggest thing I would give to any director who's, who's taking it or anybody who's new to the role is not to go to go with the mindset that they're going to get the answers to everything but to approach it as from this they can get a better idea of what they don't know and knowing what you don't know will then allow you to be able to not make th the wrong decisions that unfortunately too many directors in the we past hope. have we hope so mark you mentioned that this is being held by the condominium authority of ontario and that's a new government body that's been created uh, as of november 1st 
Well, some of these, uh, the training and everything that they've rolled out, the, the Economy Authority of Ontario was out before that, but some of its functions have started to roll out as of November 1st. It's a DAA, a designated uh, authority of the government. It's kind of arm's length from the government. So they are empowered to make decisions on behalf of the government then that are binding towards directors and corporations? They're accountable to the government. So as I understand it, with the education, for example, they were designated as the provider of the mandatory director education. So who then is responsible? Uh, so who then is responsible to enforce this education on directors? Let's say, for example, a director refuses to take the courses; they are not, they are no longer qualified to be on the board. What happens to that director? Who 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 monitors? Uh, let, me, let me try this again. We'll fix this in post. Yeah. <laughs> So, Mark, what happens to where's, a board member? I think it's where's the teeth in this? So, a board member says, I'm not taking the course. And you, so the property manager says, okay, well, then you're off. The board members, the other board members say you're off. Who pushes the guy out the door? It's going to be interesting. At the time we're recording this, not enough time has passed for any director to fall into that yet. So, when we actually see those practical examples of, say, a director, uh, didn't find the time within that six-month window, so was looking for an extension, or just does not want to take this training. Technically, the way that the law reads, at, after that six-month window, they're no longer on the board. Now, who's going to enforce that? Who's going to decide that? That's going to be very interesting to see, but I could imagine that the, the unit owners within the condominium community, the other board members, the property managers serving, are going to recognize that there is a problem if somebody is technically no longer on the board and so having them participate. I, I can see Mr. Smith has been on the board for 23 years. He's been president of the board for 22 of those years. And he just decides, this isn't for me. I don't need to do this, but I'm still the president. I'm still on the board. He's done a tremendous job all those years. What do we do? So what's the difference on if he all of a sudden decides he's, he's no longer going to pay his common expenses because he's done the service to the community for them to continue to expect him to pay his common well, expenses? Well, if, we, if, we, if with the, common, the common expenses route here, then we've got uh, issues in terms of, of leaning him, and, and we have those avenues. But this is an exam. But, I mean, at the same time, though, when he's leaned and he allows those arrears to accumulate, that would be one of the ways that he would no longer qualify to be on the board. Some condominium bylaws, for example, and this can get controversial in certain communities, would actually go a step further and require somebody to be an owner to, to run for the board or to, to be on the board. You have a situation where you have a sitting director who sold their unit, they're no longer in, in that context, if the bylaws require them to be an owner to serve on the board, would no longer be allowed to be on the board. They'd mm -hmm. be disqualified. There are many ways in which directors could be disqualified based on what's provided in the act and what might be provided in a particular condominium's bylaws. So if how do we enforce the, the disqualification rules, whether it's someone who was found out not to be an owner because they're the spouse of an owner, or we talked about, uh, about the lien provisions. Where do we go from there? It's going to be interesting to see. You know, for, for me, to kind of apply my, my mediation practice and experiences when it comes to these types of things, 
I'm always about trying to encourage compliance. So to me, Mr. Smith is complaining right now about the mandatory education. I'd try to take him aside and explain to him how this is required by law. Maybe he's intimidated by technology or a little bit nervous about having to do it online. Maybe a little bit of hand-holding will show him that this is not that bad. If he's such a valued director to the community, fellow directors likely wouldn't want to lose him. M members of the community who are happy with how he's serving the community wouldn't want to lose him. So taking the steps to encourage him to fall into compliance, I think, is probably the, the better way. Be more proactive about it than worry after the fact of what you're going to do when the person's technically disqualified. And I suppose if that doesn't work and everyone's backs are up against the wall, someone is going to need to hold that person accountable in some way or another, whether that be going to the courts or whether that be going to mediation or arbitration or perhaps even going to the condominium authority of Ontario. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about the time that we're in right now with all of these changes taking place is a lot of it is a, a wait and see what's going to happen. We can in invent all the different scenarios we want at this time, but it is going to be the case that there are going to be directors who find themselves in a disqualified position because they haven't complied with what the law says. And we'll start seeing some more actual examples and hopefully see more of a wide strange industry involvement in trying to help people comply. So Mark, just a quick question on that. And I know, uh, I know we should be moving on to another subject here, but let's say that you have this, this situation happen and there are disqualified directors that remain on the board and, and no one is taking the accountability to remove them. Can't the unit owners hold the directors accountable? Because I understand that now condominiums all across Ontario have to provide what's called a disclosure statement uh, every six months to all of their unit owners. And would that disclosure statement not list some of these uh, potential issues? The, the whole idea with a lot of these is increased communication and increased disclosure to, to owners. One of the other areas, though, for just being able to qualify for the board also uh, goes into disclosure. There are disclosure obligations now as of November 1st that if you're a condo director or you're a candidate interested in becoming a condominium director, you have to make certain disclosures. Otherwise, if you fail to do so, you would be automatically disqualified as being a director on your board. Now these disclosures, are they required in writing? Public the, elocution of those those disclosures? The disclo what happens? The disclosures can be made orally or in writing, but I think it's in everybody's best interest, the directors, the condominium corporations, to get a written recording of this somewhere, whether it be in the minutes of the meeting, if the person is addressing them orally in the course of an annual general meeting. So in that situation, you have someone who wants to be a board member, they nominate themselves, they stand up, and the requirement must be that they must disclose those uh, those items, and then the minute taker would, in essence, write it down and say, this 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 part of the, the requirements were done. And Aria, I suppose you could take that one step further and perhaps uh, prepare a form in advance of the meeting. That's what uh, my office has done. A lot, the lawyers that I've worked with have a form that they have all candidates fill out. Those who declare their interests ahead of time, so they're included in the nominations package, would include that with their bio sheet. Somebody who declares their, their nomination on, on the floor during the course of the AGM would fill it out on the spot just so it's abundantly clear. Even if those disclosures are all not applicable, not applicable, not applicable to, to show that those questions have been asked. I think it's in the best interest of any director who's going into it to make sure that if they do have to disclose something, it's abundantly clear and they can prove that they did, or if they didn't, that they honestly thought about what was there. So if there's any kind of accusation down the, the line and they are not in violation of the disclosure, they can prove it. Would you like to go over what some of those disclosures are? Why not? Being a party to an active legal proceeding that involves the condominium, and this extends beyond the individual. It extends, it extends to the individual spouse, 
their children, their parents. And, and the dog. Don't forget and, the dog. The dog and, is very important. And the children and parents of their spouse. If, they, if they've had any convictions under the Condo Act within the past oh. 10 years. If they have any interest in a contract or transaction that the condo is a party to. All right. So thinking about it. We, we, would, we would talk about it as a, as a monetary interest. Yeah. Well, well, let's specify because everyone should have an interest in all the contracts in the condo. I think ultimately thinking it through, if you're sitting on a board and you're making decisions, the mindset that you should have is what is in the best interest of this condominium community as a whole? What will best serve this corporation as a representative of the unit owners, as an elective representative of the unit owners? You should not be making decisions that are going to benefit you personally. And if you're looking at the potential service provider options, you know, three quotes that we, we talked about, window washing, whatever it is, and one of those service providers you're in cahoots with in some way, how can you make oh, an I unbiased decision? Cahoots. Yeah. And th there is a line to be drawn between like what is an actual interest versus a perceived interest. But best practice for most condo directors out there is you don't want to get perceptions going that you're doing something or you're making decisions for the wrong reason because the people might think you know, somebody's putting their hand in your pocket or, or something along those lines. You want to make sure that the decisions that you're making are what are in the best interests of the community overall. And I think really that's what the heart of that one is about. Uh, if you are an owner within the condo and you've been in arrears for 60 or more days, that has to be disclosed. If you are not an owner or occupier, that has to be disclosed. And that's a big one. That gained some press this past summer when there was a, a group of people that it, the, the media reported alleged were on the boards of, of several condominiums. Three guys. And were not owners or occupiers of those units. Um, begs the question when you're looking at a volunteer position, if you're not an owner or an occupier, why? what is it in for you? Why would you want to, to serve on the board? So giving people the ability to recognize that and ask those questions. I've come across a number of tenants who are tremendous condo directors. It's not, it's not always the case that you have to be an owner unless your bylaws say you have to be an owner. But certainly you can understand why if you have somebody who doesn't have clear ties to the community, you'd want to understand why they would want to run on the board and make those decisions that are going to impact people that have ties to the community. Um, also now it's expanded where the condominium community, each individual one, could add to its bylaws additional disclosure requirements if it so wished. An example might be if you have a spouse that's on the board, right? Nicholas gave the example of uh, you know, two owners not having two votes, two owners of one unit having a single vote. Well, in some condominium communities, the way that the uh, bylaws are set up, if you have two owners, say, two spouses who are living in a unit, nothing's preventing both of them from running for the board. There may be community members who don't like that idea and would want that to be disclosed. That's sure. the type of thing that condos could consider introducing into their bylaws, for example. So the idea is with all of these disclosures, you have to put it out there if you're interested in running for the board or being a director. And if you don't make those disclosures, if it turns out that one of these things applies to you and you did not disclose it to the community, you're no longer a director. That's a good thing. Now, um, I guess given all these things, education, disclosures, being uh, buttonholed in an elevator, why the heck would anybody want to be a director? I've seen some directors who 
really take personal enjoyment out of it. You know, talk about how sometimes it can be a thankless job. That's not always the case. There are some communities that are very appreciative of the volunteers. There are some people who like having that kind of influence over their investment, and not just for their own personal benefit, but for the other members of their communities as well. If you look at a condominium community that's harmonious and people know one another, how good would it feel to know that you're having a positive impact on everyone? How good would it feel to know that not only are you protecting your investment and, say, increasing your property values, but you're doing it for all of your neighbors as well? There is a lot of personal satisfaction that can be taken from it. There's a lot of anguish and heartache that can be taken from it as well. So, Mark, you've been elected to the board of directors. You've been successful in your campaign, and you're now a director of a condominium corporation. You have your first board meeting. What should you expect as a, f- as a first-time newcomer on the board? I've come across a number of people newly elected to their boards who are there for a reason. They had some issue, perhaps, that they were really vocally in support of, that they didn't like what was being done. They had some concerns about how the board was operating and how they were making decisions. The most important advice I can give is don't make assumptions as to what was being done. When you're not on the board, you're not exposed to certain dynamics and certain operations that take place. Every once in a while, you might come across condos that are open to having open board meetings or bringing a prospective director into the boardroom to see how they operate. But a lot of condominiums don't operate that way. A lot of condominiums, those boardroom meetings are closed door, and for good reason when you consider confidentiality and some of the stuff that comes up. So if you're brand new to a board, you might have some assumptions as to how things were being done, but you haven't experienced it. So the first thing I I would suggest is take a minute to observe what's going on and get an understanding of of why things work the way they do and, and, and how they're working before jumping to any conclusions based on your assumptions. That's excellent advice, Mark. And I know that at the first board meeting of directors after the AGM, what typically happens is the appointment of officers. Now, we talked about that a little bit earlier in the Mm -hmm. program, so we don't need to probably go into too much detail about that, but perhaps we should uh, just discuss very briefly, you know, what happens at that first meeting when the officers are elected and what kind of process should board members uh, conduct themselves by at board meetings? Okay. Well, I think it's important and I, I've seen it, the, the economy and boards that work well together have a team mentality. And it's not just amongst members of the board, it's with managers, it's with the people who, who service the community as well. It makes a big difference to build that rapport, to build that trust. The most important thing I think, and when I was a board member, is something I used to say anytime somebody new joined the board, we don't have to agree on everything. In fact, it's better for a community if we don't agree on everything. If you think about a condominium board that has to make decisions, if every single decision was always uncontested, if everybody always thought the same way, what's the point in having multiple directors? If your duty is to, to make the best decisions for your community overall, it's important to consider a variety of perspectives. You don't have to agree with those perspectives. You don't have to ultimately vote in favor of those perspectives, but to think about them helps make sure that you have a, a better decision that you make at the end of the day to serve anybody. And if you can create a culture within your boardroom where people feel comfortable expressing differences of opinion, I think you service your community better overall. So even if you have disagreements, you feel that that would be beneficial to the ultimate discussion and decision-making ability of the board? 
I, I think if you can create an environment where people feel comfortable being able to, to freely express what they're thinking. No, th no chair throwing. No chair throwing. Right. I, I think part of that is not taking it personally. So establishing from the outset, and when, when I was economy director, this is what I used to do before we even got to a situation where I was going to have a differing opinion with somebody. It's okay for us to agree to disagree. It's okay for you to have a vote that's not in favor of what I'm proposing, and it's okay for me to vote not in favor of what you're proposing from time to time. But that's not that that affect how you and I are going to get along. We're both here to try to do what's best for our condo. You might think that one direction is best. I might think another direction is best let's vote on it let's move on and there's going to be times we agree there's going to be times that we don't but that's what it's all about that's how it should function and at the end of the day it is a democratic process so if there's a majority decision everyone needs to respect that whether they disagree or not yes with one small caveat what's the caveat if you sit silently in a board meeting and the board makes a decision and you don't voice your objection it is considered to be the way the, the way the minutes will be read the way that the history books will show it for the condo that you agreed. Tacit. So if you do not agree with what your board is doing, it is important that you have that minuted and documented in some way. That's a good point now. So when, when it is minuted, how should the minute takers take that information on who voted? If you do have, um, as we've sat in minutes and we go unanimous or somebody says, I, I'm not interested in that, I'm not going to vote on it. So they just put down past there's usually no indication that i've seen where I, i've had maybe one or two corporations where they specify how the voting went well to take that one step further there are some minutes that are taken for some board meetings where let's say that there's five directors and mm -hmm. there's a decision on the floor four of those directors approve that decision and one uh one director rejects that decision sometimes the minutes will reflect four in approval one against is that proper or should it actually list the names of the directors that agree and disagree with the subject? Personally, if I'm a director who's participating in a board meeting and I don't agree with the decision that the majority of the board has, has made, I'm comfortable moving on, I'm comfortable accepting that decision, but personally I want the minutes to show my name as being the dissenting director because if it ever comes back for whatever reason to, to haunt me, I want it to be abundantly clear that I didn't go ahead and approve it. And condos are also political. Right. I have seen situations where a director votes one way in a board meeting and then because the community might not like the decision of the board, they backtrack afterwards and claim that they're not responsible or they didn't make the decision. Ambiguity in the minutes could run risks like that for somebody who's dissenting. I think it's important to do it in a way that's not going to cause friction, though. You know, explain why you're doing it, explain everything, respect the decision. But I think it's important to protect yourself as a director to have that minuted properly. So in other words, what you're saying is silence is acceptance. And it is the best practice recommendation for you to have the names of the people who agree or disagree with a decision to be documented in the minutes. Yes, and I actually think that that mindset is extending throughout society these days. When you think about different things that are going on, the idea of, of sitting through things or seeing things happen and, and not taking anything about it, not voicing any objection, is increasingly being deemed to be some kind of approval or consent. So, uh, so, so being silent, just to reiterate, is a tacit approval. And um, I think, as you've noted, and uh, Nicholas has noted, and Mark has noted, that down the road, this is really the instance is whether you you it's not whether you approve or not, but the recording of it can either help you or, in essence, hurt you down the road. Mm -hmm. But uh, Mark, what about that old saying? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. 
is there a limit of dissension that board members should respect? I mean, at a board meeting, you can certainly have disagreement. And at the end of the day, when a vote is cast and a decision is made, uh, you can reject that decision and have your comments noted in the minutes. But what happens when that board meeting has ended? As a director, whether you agree or disagree with the decision, should you be going around and, and discussing that decision with other people? Or should you be respecting the privacy of the board meetings, even if you don't like the outcome? You should respect the decision of the board. You're part of a team. Think of it. Think of yourself on a baseball team and you're a star pitcher and you're in the World Series and you, you, you've pitched a great game and it's the ninth inning and the manager comes and takes you out of the game and you really want to stay in the game. When you speak to the press afterwards, you don't throw the manager under the bus. You stand behind your team as a good teammate. It's no different for a board. The only difference is it's a lot more political because there's a lot more eyes and ears around you all the time in your condominium community. What happens in the boardroom with the decisions that are made should stay in the boardroom. The... the minutes that are taken can be accessible by people and, and that sort of stuff and it's framed the right way and the confidential stuff that's discussed in the, in the meeting would, would not be disclosed necessarily you could have a separate set of in-camera type minutes or, or whatever but outside of the board meeting you're a representative of the board and you should stand with your board and support your board now that's the theory the reality we know that that doesn't always happen politics that's comes why we have requisition meetings yeah yeah we'll get, we'll get to that in probably another episode um, i was yeah that's a whole kettle of fish yeah uh one final question mark do you have any tips for board members on dealing with conflict internally with their board members? I have a lot of experience in it because there's been times that I've been brought in to mediate problems that are happening at the board level. It gets very personal for people at times. Uh, behavior can, can sometimes get out of hand. Um, one of the things I find is, and I, I do this in mediation and it's directly applicable, is establishing some kind of ground rules. How are we going to conduct ourselves at board meetings? If you don't agree with what I'm saying or you don't like me and you're constantly rolling your eyes or mimicking me, it's only going to frustrate the process for everyone. So try to get everybody on board to let's have some respectful communication. right? Let, let's not resort to name calling or chair throwing or, or that sort of thing. Um, Developing, just extending on that, an interaction plan. So an idea of this is how we're going to communicate. Everybody's going to have an opportunity to talk. I'm not going to interrupt you. You're not going to interrupt me. What did you me. say? <laughs> and I've seen it before. You know, there's a, there's a hotly contested issue in a boardroom and multiple directors have something to say. Well, the chair of the meeting can conduct it in a way that gives everybody an equal amount of time to talk without being interrupted. And that has a lot to do with listening skills has a lot to do with listening skills versus a situation where there's chaos and people are talking over one another and the minute taker is stressed out because they have no idea what to record. I, I think it's just generating those ground rules and, and having that professionalism. And those rules can be written down. You notice I'm interrupting him every time here. So. Oh, yeah, you, you have terrible <laughs> listening skills. We all know that. The, the other advice, though, I would give to a, a new director, particularly a new director who faces a situation where they feel like they're always opposed to the decisions that the board is making, is that there, there should be a give and take sometimes. Right? Like, choose your battles. If you are very, very vehemently for a certain color of flowers, and I could care less, I'll let you have that one. You know, and then hopefully we build that give and take a little bit. When there's something that's really important to me, well, you might be a little bit more open to where I'm going. We know, we know that because it's such a politically charged atmosphere, uh, and we've all been party to this, where um, a really good functioning board um, loses members due to the termination or, or the expiry of their term, and maybe a less favorable candidate or a block of 
unit owners decides they want to get their candidate on the board mm -hmm. for their agenda, there tends to be voting blocks in a meeting. That's where you, where you tend to find that from our perspective, not a lot gets done or they'll shut out the th three or majority of the old board will predominantly shut out somebody else. How can those things be massaged or either from our aspect as managers or as your experience as a uh, mediator to make that board functional? You know, we, we talked a little bit earlier about what a new, newly elected director should do. I think it's worth considering what existing board members should do when somebody new joins their board. The worst thing that I've seen is the existing board members saying to that new director, this is how things are done, this is how they've always been done. It should be a continual evolution. You should try to include that new person. So what if they have some different views? They're not going to disagree with you on absolutely everything. They're a member of your community, most likely. They have an interest in your community or they wouldn't be elected to the board. Try to find what you have in common. Try to make them feel like they're a part of the team. Help them get comfortable. And clearly they've been elected, so there is some support behind them from other people of the community, so you should certainly treat them as such. Yes. Uh, I've seen situations where boards have had somebody new join who was viewed as being very against them and they've been able to work out a situation that benefits everybody because they get along and the, the pocket of people that elected this new director presumably because they had some concerns were able to have their concerns satisfied. It, it, it shouldn't always be looked at as opposition. You are, as board members, member of a team. You have something in common, your condo. So work with that and try to get some kind of understanding going. Well, I, I guess to wrap up, one of the things I've said several times, as a manager sitting in a management office, you're exposed to a lot of people who come down and complain about the board. They complain about the situations that are happening in the building, and the board can't get this right, the board can't get that right. My response always has been, roll up your sleeves, run for the board. You want to affect change, be a part of the system. So. I think one of the things that we can take for this is here's what it is to be on the board, how to get on the board, but really it's a little bit of your duty for your investment, your property, and your community. If you're not happy with the way things are, you have avenues, you have processes and procedures to affect change. And it's probably better to affect change from the inside than the outside. Definitely. And as a mediator, one thing I tell people whenever they're trying to address a situation is give some thought about how you're going to go about it and what you want to accomplish. A lot of times people make situations worse from themselves by, by using charged language or making something public. I actually had one mediation where we had a unit owner and the option legitimately came up where he was interested in seeing if he could sell his unit. He was having such problems that he, he thought that that was something he wanted to pursue. And he went back to investigate and he realized and he felt terrible about this. He started a Facebook group trashing the condo and his realtor cited that group as one of the reasons for a diminished property value that made it unaffordable for him to sell his unit and he felt like he shot himself in the foot. Trashing people on, on social media, making something public might not be the best way to go about accomplishing what you want to accomplish if you want to address a situation. So That's a very short-sighted view, isn't it? It is. Think it about your end you, game. kind of makes you feel good uh, for the moment, but ultimately it hurts you in your pocketbook. Well, I imagine if I was going to be buying a condominium corporation and I did a little bit of research and I Google that condominium corporation and I see a whole bunch of comments negative about the community, about the directors, about anything that goes on in that, in that, in that building, whether it's a townhouse or whether it's a high-rise building, myself as an owner, 
potential owner, this would discourage me from wanting to purchase. So I can certainly see how it would affect property value. Yeah. And you think about it, this fellow was an owner. He was hurting his own investment as well. And at the end of the day, really, what he needed to get accomplished, what he wanted to have done, there was another path to going about doing that that wouldn't have been nearly as destructive. Mark, I just want to want to ask ask you something. I know you're involved in a program called Condo Strength. Would you like to explain a little bit about what Condo Strength does and what CCI does and your role with both of those institutions? Sure. So I volunteer on the board of directors of the Toronto and area chapter of the Canadian Condominium Institute. I'm the second vice president of the chapter right now. CCI is a nationwide not-for-profit organization. It's been around since 1982. Canadian Condominium Institute. Canadian Condominium Institute. Uh, it's been around since 1982. It has 17 chapters coast to coast. Uh, I serve on the, the Toronto chapter. And in the course of my time serving on the Toronto chapter, I, I joined the board back in 2013, uh, I got involved in this pilot project that the idea was to build some kind of program to help the condominium directors that CCI helps serve. Now, CCI traditionally provides education to directors, seminars, courses, conferences, uh, provides publications, uh, Condo Voice magazine, the Toronto chapter is Great publication. hockey team. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, a certain degree of advocacy work with the, the government, the CCI, and, and other organizations such as ACMO, who you mentioned, were instrumental in, in helping the government realize that there was need for some legislative improvements in Toronto. But, but going back to this condo strength idea, what we basically did, and I, I led the uh, initial focus group ideas, where we got together with a bunch of directors and we basically asked them, what is it that CCI can do for you? And the initial idea was almost like some kind of reward system, like gold star that CCI could give to certain condos or directors for making certain efforts. And we quickly realized that while it's nice for people to have a gold star, who cares what CCI thinks in terms of what a condominium director or board is doing? What matters is how the members of that condominium community feel. So we built this program called Condo Strength that, had, that has three main branches. The first is to do with recognition of communities. And the idea is if a, a board has good satisfaction amongst their community, if the, the owners and occupants of the of the community are happy with how the board is doing, that's what deserves a gold star, not what some outsider of the community thinks. The second is resources. So what we've done, and this program has now, as of 2016, extended across all 17 chapters of CCI, so it does exist coast to coast, the idea of sharing resources, sharing success stories. So the concept is if a director has been on a board that's overcome a certain challenge, they have the ability through this program to capture that and share that story with others. And now what we found in, in discussing with the focus groups with, with various directors is that certain challenges that condos face are not always unique to that condo. Many of the types of problems that condominiums experience are similar from various condos. One example, if you have trouble getting people out uh, to have quorum for your annual general meeting, unit owner participation is not something that's a challenge that's isolated to one particular condo. It's something that several condos experience. Now, what's worked for your condo might not work for my condo, but we found that directors who are embarking on trying to address a certain challenge took some comfort in realizing that they were not alone, that other people had gone through this. And being able to speak to somebody else or, or hear from somebody else who'd gone through and had overcome that challenge and what types of strategies worked and didn't work helped give those directors some ideas. And, and really the, the highlight of the Condo Strength Program that takes that concept and, and brings it to life in person. So what the Condo Strength Program does is it hosts director networking events hosted at the site of, of different condominiums. The idea is to bring condo directors together to chat about various issues on a peer-to-peer -peer type level. CCI has traditionally been very good at delivering one-way 
access to experts. So you, you go to a seminar, you go to a course, you sit in a chair and you hear some condominium experts speak and educate you. And that's great because you don't always have that knowledge. What Condo Strength Director networking events do is they take that expert out of the room and they bring condo directors together to just to chat amongst themselves. It's two-way interaction type getting together. And one of the things that we found is condo directors who are actively involved in their communities like having the politics of their community taken away from the situation by being able to, to talk to other fellow directors. So the program is designed to be a, a for directors, by directors program that just brings condominium directors from, from different communities together to be able to exchange ideas and to, to chat and learn and benefit from one another in a, in a positive way. So uh, condostrength.ca is the website and also through the various CCI chapters. The, the other piece of it that I just should mention is one of the biggest pieces of feedback we got from the focus groups in developing this that we've held true to is it is accessible free to members of CCI. So while many condominium directors who are, are members or non-members of CCI have to pay to go to courses or to have access to those experts in those types of situations, the networking events, the, the resources, all of that stuff is available uh, for free at no charge and for members. if people want to reach you, can you uh, highlight on how they can do that as well? I'm active on, on Twitter at Mark Bala. I'm active on LinkedIn. You can connect through me through social media. If you go to that Mark on Mediation website, my contact information is all there. If you go to the Condo Mediators website through Elia Associates, you can you can get me that way. There's another plug for Elia Associates. Okay, we're going to be uh, cashing it in. That's what, uh, it's half a dozen now? I think so, so pretty much. <laughs> we're going to charge per... Wait, hold on. I think I'm getting a phone call from Ben Rutherford saying why he isn't getting, he isn't getting equal time. Okay. Guys, we've covered a lot of information today. So Mark, how can people reach you if they have questions about board of directors, about ethics issues, about mediation concerns? Can if, you they want, if they want uh, hockey lessons, uh, help with their golf swing. The easiest way to check me out is markonmediation.ca. And the nice thing about that site is you can spell my name with the K or a C, you'll still find it. Uh, Condo Mediator's website. Do you like look down at people who spell their names with a K? No, you know, not, you're, not you're, at all. But I wonder what my parents were thinking because I don't speak any French. And because my name is spelled with a C, I get people who come up to me thinking I'm bilingual all the time. I'd like to take the opportunity now to thank Mark Bala, uh, chartered mediator, hotshot hockey player, amazing golfer, super dad, I'm sure, <laughs> right? Thank you for coming out and sharing your insight and, and uh, stories with us. Uh, before we go, we did get some mail regarding our previous episodes with, uh, with Ben Rutherford. So I just want to touch on that. I have a, I have a, a letter here from uh, Susie in Brampton who says, um, I listened to your episodes with Benjamin Rutherford. Um, I thought they were very informative and they were great. I then went to your citysitesmanagement.com website and took a look at his picture. Is Ben Rutherford married? Well, we'll pass that on to Ben, and we'll let him answer that, perhaps on our next episode. So, Mark, we'll be putting your picture up on the website. Now, let's answer that question right now. Are you married or not? Yes, I am married. Thank you, Ari. Okay, good. So, Susie and Brampton, Mark Bala, not it. Once again, Mark, on behalf of Nicholas and myself, thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. this or any episode of We Speak Condo interesting or informative, please subscribe to the podcast by visiting our website, www.citysitesmanagement.com. If you want to have your questions answered, email us. We'll be responding to your love letters or hate mail every week. 
thanks for listening.